is the Angel Next Door podcast, where we will talk about all things angel investing, what it is, who does it, how do we find them, what does it mean to invest in an early stage company. If you have ever wondered how you can affect the change you want to see in the world, then tune in to learn more. Hi, everyone. In today's episode, I'm going to be talking to my good friend and ACA colleague, Christopher Morabelli. He is the Senior Managing Director of Launchpad Venture Group up in Boston. And if we had hours and hours for a podcast, we might be able to touch on even partially what Christopher has accomplished. He really has done so much for angel investing and actually was the recipient of the Angel Capital Association's Hans Severns Award last year, along with his partner, Ham Lord. So I'm excited to have Christopher on the show because he's going to be talking about his journey on becoming an angel, a little bit about Launchpad and some of the things that he's done there, and the fact that he is now a member of the Investor Advisory Committee for the SEC, and he's about to take over as the chair. Christopher has quite a bit of experience chairing organizations. He it was the chair of the ACA in the past, and that is the role that I'm currently playing. So I have big shoes to fill for sure. The other thing we didn't talk about on the show is the fact that Christopher writes a column for Inc. Magazine, so you definitely want to check that out. He is also an adjunct lecturer in the MBA program of the Babson's Olin School of Business. And he co-founded Serif. And Serif is a professional portfolio management tool for investors in early stage companies. And many angels take advantage of using a software like this in order to help them stay organized with the companies they invest in. And since Christopher has experience as a securities lawyer, he's also going to share with us some of his thoughts on crowdfunding. You may remember in a past episode, I had an entrepreneur come on to the show, an angel turned entrepreneur, Brian Scott, who raised over $750,000 on a crowdfunding platform called Republic. Well, Christopher is going to tell us a little bit about his thoughts and some of the things that entrepreneurs want to make sure they know. If they are deciding to use crowdfunding as a way to raise capital themselves. Enjoy the show. Hi, Christopher. Welcome to the show. Hey, Marsha. How are you today? All is well. I'm so excited to have you on. We've been talking about this for quite a while since really we started the whole podcast idea. And as you know, The Angel Next Door is all about how did people even become angels? How did you learn about it? So why don't you tell us a little bit about your story? It's great to be here. My story, I was in the technology industry. Early in my career, I had worked with a lot of startups when I was a, a corporate lawyer, and I had done a lot of venture capital fund formation and private company representation and money raising you know, for work done, you know, Series A, Series B, Series C kinds of deals. Did some IPO and M&A work. And then I ended up going into what became a pretty large enterprise software company and, you know, being part of a management team as opposed to being a lawyer, ultimately transitioned from being the, the general counsel to the CFO. And it was a NASDAQ listed company that was also listed on exchange in Europe. And it was a, you know, it was a busy thing. And I, I enjoyed it a lot. It was certainly a, the most enjoyable part of practicing law, but I missed the startups and sort of being closer to innovation and being closer to entrepreneurs and sort of the excitement, the sort of crackle and sparkle of just being around fast growth. 
And we ended up selling the company. It's actually a, a story for another day, but it was a heck of, a, of an exit involving the, the financial meltdown and everything. And I popped out with some freedom, trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. And, and you know, as I was sort of networking, uh, I was drawn to certain kinds of circles and certain kinds of people and certain kinds of companies. And next thing I knew, I sort of was sucked into the early stage market in the Boston area where my family and I are based. Around what year is this? This would have been like 2009. So coming on like 12 years ago now, you know, I looked around and Boston's got somewhere in the neighborhood of 400,000 college students and a lot of innovation and, and, and entrepreneurship going on and a, a fair number of organized and disorganized angels. And when I looked at the processes and the existing groups, I thought to myself, you know, there really is an opportunity to do this more professionally. This is imp pretty important work and entrepreneurship really does have the potential to create jobs and make our country more competitive and solve really pressing problems in medical space and in uh, technology fields. It also has the potential to be inclusive, be a force for social good in terms of, you know, it used to be in the 1940s and 50s, a college degree was a pretty great way to change your station in life. And it's now, that's not as powerful of an escalator and entrepreneurship still is a really powerful escalator. And so you start to realize that this is an important space. And when you study it, you realize that the capital is a really critical piece of it. And it's pretty informal even today, but back then certainly it was. And I sort of looked around and I said, geez, you know, there, there's, I think there's room to do this more professionally. And I decided to create my own group. And the guy who founded Launchpad, Ham Lord, was a mentor to me. I was a member at Launchpad. And, you know, he eventually came and said, hey, I love what you're doing. And I'm sort of looking for a partner. Let's merge your group with, with mine. And so Launchpad 2.0 was created at that point. And he and I set out to really professionalize angel investing. And we did it in terms of how we ran the group. And we did it in terms of some of the tools we created, like the Seraph Investor tool for portfolio management. And we did it by my getting involved in the ACA, where you and I met on the board of the Angel Capital Association. And we did it by writing a ton, lots and lots of articles and on the on the Seraph Compass. And uh, I think, I don't know not counting the course books we've done. I think it's like we've written like seven, seven, written and published seven books. So it's been a busy time. So that's that's how the hell I got here. <laughs> huh. Well, you've done so much for angel investing and you and Ham Lord actually won the Hans Severns Award last year. Very exciting. But tell us a little bit about what Seraph is. So the listeners kind of well, understand. Seraph is, it's a classic entrepreneurial story in the sense that, you know, you solve a problem you have, you understand the problem better. Launchpad grew pretty large pretty quickly. And we've, we've put, I don't know, maybe $130, $140 million to work. Wow. And we've backed probably about 125, 130 companies. And I think our investor base right now is about 175, 180 investors. And those are pretty active engaged. These are dues paying members, not a diaspora. 
so it just became unbelievably complicated to track all of that with a spreadsheet, particularly the kinds of deals where there's a convertible security of some sort, and then you convert it into something else, or there's warrants, interest paid. And we just ran out of gas. We tried to convert from a spreadsheet to a relational database. We just ran out of gas. We ended up going out to there's got to be a better tool. And we were surprised that there wasn't. There were some big, heavy tools for sort of uh, PE and venture capital uh, fund accounting, but there was nothing that was just a simple, lightweight tool for portfolio management. And so we're like, all right, well, let's lash something together for our own use. And we showed it to some people and people said, ah, can I use it? And then we let people use it. And then people had a list of requests. And then at one point, you know, at some point we had a product roadmap that had to be funded. So we said, all right, let's just put it out there as a commercial tool to fund its development. And it now has, I think it's approaching 15 billion in deals on the platform customers in tons of countries, uh, tens of thousands of startups and investment rounds. And I don't need countless transactions. And it's been a lifesaver for us in terms of using it. So we're the hardest critic of that tool because we we beat the ever-living shit out of it, using it to run a group as complicated as Launchpad. And the bread and butter of the, it's really not angel groups. The angel groups are very sentimental customer for us and we love them and we'll always take care of them. But the real business is smaller funds. That's where most of the enterprise revenue and, and you know, a lot of the more demanding users are. Because it will also help with like reporting and yeah, LP management and, and report performance reporting, uh, performance analytics and, and just, you know, basic deal flow management and just a place to track statistics. It has a KPI system that funds, especially impact funds, use where Seraph has a lot of data integrity and control. We don't want people messing with your data, but the one area where data can be added by someone other than an administrator is in the KPI space. So a lot of our impact customers create KPIs per company, and then the system will automatically push out requests for updates and those KPIs get entered in automatically. And so the impact funds and regular funds can use the KPI system to really help them with their tracking and reporting. And a KPI could be anything from as simple as revenue or customers, or it could be something more complicated by tons of CO2 or underrepresented people helped or units of affordable housing created or anything you want. Oh, wow. Or with like medical things where there's no revenue yet, you know, there's steps toward FDA approval and all that. Wow. Very neat. So while we're talking about portfolio companies, why don't you give our listeners a little peek into maybe an exit or two that has happened for Launchpad? Yeah. So we, we, we've been fortunate. I think in our history, we've had somewhere in the neighborhood of about 70 exits or partial exits over time uh-huh. of which, a, you know, a good number were positive and a good number were negative. It's been an interesting time. There's a couple of things I'd say about exits. One is that some of our best deals happened right in those, those down years and after the dot-com era. And again, after the meltdown in 2008. So What's the old saying, you know, be greedy when others are scared and be scared when others are greedy, right? So, but we've had some pretty neat exits. The other thing I would say about exits is that they're not always 
an IPO or an acquisition. One of the themes that we've been talking about a lot is different kinds of liquidity options. We've we sold five SaaS portfolio companies to private equity in one year. Wow. And those deals typically come with a big chunk of liquidity, usually more than enough to get your capital back. So you're playing with house money. And then often we'll have a second or even a third liquidity option. So we've got one of those going on right now where we sold one of our companies to a PE firm. And I think it was about a six or seven X return offered. And you could sell some, all or none of your stock. And they are now merging that portfolio company with another one and offering liquidity. This time it's sell everything or hold everything. There's no, there's no partial. And then uh, their expectation is they're going to mark that company up and they're hoping to sell it sometime next year. And then they'll, that'll be the ultimate liquidity. So non-traditional liquidity options like selling to VCs as they invest, selling to PE. We would consider that a secondary sale, right? Yeah. Secondary market, I guess. Yeah. The the VCs are often looking to own a bigger chunk of the company than the company really needs to raise in money. And so having some investors help the VCs achieve their ownership goals can be a really nice way to a win-win for everybody. The other exit I'll mention, Marcia, is one that it teaches a powerful angel lesson. We had a company that was it was basically a SaaS company, but not really because it was transactional. So the, the revenue was pretty recurring, but not by contract. It was just recurring by happenstance. So they didn't actually get a very good multiple, you know, whereas a really nice SaaS company with good metrics might get a six, seven, eight X revenue multiple. These guys got a four X revenue multiple but it resulted in a 22.2x return for us. Wow. And the reason for that was capital efficiency. This company raised, we, we gave them 400K in seed. And then quickly thereafter, at a, at a pretty low valuation, we gave them another million for growth. And they took off. It was actually a funny company. It was like... <laughs> five guys from MIT and there was no one who was obviously the Sloan School, no one who was obviously the CEO. Eventually we convinced them someone had to have that title, but they grew the company in a very capital efficient way into a nice $20 million revenue run rate without ever raising any more money. So even wow. though they got a you know, relatively low revenue multiple of four or 4X revenue, because they got to a nice revenue run rate relatively quickly with relatively money, they paid us a dividend with excess cash at one point, which was mostly just driven off of the founders wanting to you know, buy a house with a white picket fence or whatever, and then delivered us a 22.2x return. So that's an, an ex- exit story worth sharing because it really illustrates the power of capital efficiency and the fact that even on an $80 million exit with a very mediocre cash on, I mean, fine, decent cash on cash, you know, the, the, the return, you know, the revenue multiple is a four X, even in that scenario, angels can do extraordinarily well. If the management team is focused on growth without wasting capital. Right. We tell entrepreneurs all the time, you know, be so careful how much money you're taking in. It's not like, hey, let's just go raise as much money as we can and 
Yeah. The old joke I say to entrepreneurs is taking money from investors is like taking a loan that the buyer of your company is meant to pay back $10 for every dollar you borrowed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Kind of sobering when you think about it, right? Right. Wow. So switching gears for a minute, let's talk about your role with the SEC and how that came about. Yeah. So um, through the work that we, you and I have been doing at the ACA and our colleagues on the board, you know, we've spent a lot of time on the Hill and gotten to know not only legislators and their staff, but also regulators. And uh, we've developed, the ACA has developed a pretty good relationship with the SEC. And the SEC in the summer of 2010, right after the meltdown, the Dodd-Frank Act was passed and section, I think it was 911 of the Dodd-Frank Act created this thing called the Investor Advisory Council. And it's one of a, uh, a few advisory councils that give the SEC advice from the perspective of industry. It's the only one that was created by congressional statute. But its job is to try to represent, be an advocate for the investor with the SEC. And it's about 20 people from all different aspects of industry. I'm about to take over as the chair next month of that organization. Yeah, it's awesome. And uh, we currently have three subcommittees. One is investor as owner. One is investor as purchaser. And one is market structure. And we're in the process of creating a fourth focused on disclosure. And basically what we do is we track emerging issues and areas where the SEC, you know, we think they might be behind or need to pay more attention. And we pull together panels of experts broad. For example, we're doing a panel on crypto right now with eight panelists at our December meeting. And we give the commissioners an opportunity to ask questions and the chair and their staffs are usually involved. And then coming out of those panels, we boil it down. And if we think there's an opportunity to make a recommendation to the SEC, we write up a white paper recommendation and we, we give it to the staff. And in a, in a way, we augment their limited staff resources. You know, the taxpayers support that organization and they can only do what they have the bandwidth to do and having experts from industry represent a different perspective and do some of the work pulling together panels and doing some of the research. So uh, we did a big push. I was one of the principals in putting together a big panel on SPACs, which Mm -hmm. resulted in a recommendation to the SEC around, you know, trying to find ways to better disclose the complexities of the different interests at work and protect investors a little bit better in these complicated transactions. And that was met with a lot of interest by the SEC. Yes, SPACs have definitely had a very interesting year. (laughs) Mm -hmm, For sure. Yeah, that the, the final chapter has not been written there. There's an awful lot of SPACs in flight. And our recommendation reflected that fact. We said, look, there's a lot of the horse is already out of the corral with respect to the 600 or so SPACs that are in flight. But in terms of approving new ones, here's some more pointed questions you could be asking. And when you're approving the mergers of those 600, here's some things you could be thinking about. So we acknowledge that there's a lot going on in that space. 
So interesting. So you put together a white paper on SPACs. Now it sounds like you're working on something related to crypto. Mm-hmm. Don't know whether the crypto panel will evolve into a recommendation. Two different subcommittees are involved in it, owner and purchaser. Uh, it's kind of a joint effort between two subcommittees. So I'd be very surprised if we didn't have a recommendation that would flow from it. But the first step is sort of the hearing, you know, the, the, the panel, and then parsing through some of the learnings and takeaways. And, and in case you're interested, these meetings are all open to the public. This whole thing is auditable and trackable and our recommendations are public records. So if you just search, if you Google SEC, IAC, Investor Advisory Committee, those two acronyms, SEC, IAC, you'll find the, the website and you can dig around and find past recommendations and everything. And you can listen to, if you're interested in crypto, you can listen to that panel live. Wow. Very cool. We'll definitely put that in the show notes for our listeners. Cool. And what are your thoughts around crypto? You know, I think probably... Uh, distributed ledger technology is going to be pretty important down the road. It's not always the best technology to solve the problems that it's being used for. In many cases, there are better computer science ways to do what they're doing. But in a digital world, if I give you my book, I don't own it. And you do because the physical embodiment of those pages are in your possession. But if it's a digital book, and I give it to you, there's no way to prevent me from also owning it. And so if you need a system that prevents that kind of situation, an infinitely duplicatable digital assets and perfect fidelity, you know, that's a solvable problem. But if you add the additional element that you don't want the quote unquote man in the middle, you don't want a Federal Reserve or an exchange in the middle, that's actually a really hard problem. I mean, it's easy for me to give the book to the hall monitor and then the hall monitor to you know, give it to you. But if we don't want somebody in the middle, just a distributed ledger solution is a, is a very interesting Byzantine generals problem, right? So it's a, it's a very interesting space. And I think that idea is here to stay and some really good and interesting things will come out of it. But I think that the coin stuff's really, really overheated and that there are there's a tremendous amount of speculation going on right now. And there's a lot of people who are taking on a ton of risk that they don't understand that they're taking on. And that a lot of the participants in the market right now have been in a market that's only pretty much gone up. Yes, there's been a couple of corrections on the Bitcoin price, but for the most part, it's a pretty heady time. And that you, know, you find out who's swimming naked when the tide goes out. So I do worry that there's a lot more risk there than people understand. And I think we are going to sort of focus on trying to educate investors and make sure that the, the risks are disclosed. And, you know, I, I think in public comments, Chair Gensler, the chairman of the SEC, has said that he thinks that the only way he's pretty very knowledgeable about crypto. And he sort of said the only way crypto really thrives is if we provide it with a regulatory framework that protects investors. Yeah. Because ultimately, with a lot of these new technologies, the the tool up, you know, bubble occurs and people get hurt. And so the SEC has got a really constructive additive attitude about it, which is that let's provide some guardrails to protect investors so that this technology can achieve its full potential. So 
we're going to look back on this interview 20 years from now and realize right. we were in the, the first inning. There's right. lots, lots to go there. It's an interesting space, but it's, it's pretty messy right now. Yeah. I'm not even sure if we're in the first inning, we may right. still be in the parking lot. <laughs> right. Right. I think that's fair. So speaking of SEC regulations, back in 2016, I believe in May, the SEC passed some rules around crowdfunding called Reg CF. And that, so yeah. tell us a little bit about that and how it works. And yeah. it did become nicknamed Reg CF. Uh, regulation crowdfunding was its official name. And it was uh, back in, in 2016. And the idea was to try to think of a way to allow the formation of capital to occur in a more egalitarian way, not, not um, limited to the uh, high net worth accredited investors that you typically associate with Reg D private exempt offerings. And it's a fascinating area that I think has a lot of potential. It's also very early innings, really, in the big scheme of things. There's more and more activity and some new platforms coming in. I think you just did an episode recently uh, with someone who had a pretty good experience at Republic, for example, and they're they're a pretty splashy new name in this space. But as of yet, not a lot of money is really changing hands on sort of reg CF deal structures. And when I say not a lot, I'm talking about like hundreds of millions total since 2016 against a backdrop where 20 to 50 billion is put into early stage deals every year. So a tiny drop in the bucket. And I think, Marsha, that there are some reasons for that. You know, the SEC really has two jobs. One job is the formation of capital and the other job is the regulation of the markets and the prevention of fraud. When there's fraud, Bernie Madoff steals everybody's nest egg. Right. You better believe the SEC gets hauled in front of Congress to account for that. When a marginal additional dollar of capital is not formed, there's no congressional investigation. So that aspect of their job is harder because you really are trying to balance the the positive effects of forming capital and creating uh, strong markets and stuff. And so Reg CF reflected that tension. And there are some things in Reg CF that make it, well, in the crassest terms, it makes it kind of expensive capital compared to raising under an exempt deal like a 506B or 506C deal. And that's really because of the SEC's mandate to kind of prevent fraud. So because they're allowing people who are not accredited and are not deemed under that rule to be really super sophisticated, you know, they have some some pretty tight per investor annual limits. So the amount of money that you can invest, you can raise through crowdfunding is limited by the fact that you have to get a small amount from a ton of people. And there are sort of some important company limitations. They can only raise a million a year, which once you start to get the furnace really going, that's really not enough coal to shovel into the boiler. And uh, the problem is that when you have a Reg CF offering open, because of the SEC rules around integration, you can't have another offering open. So that's your only, Reg CF is your only offering you can have. You have to just shut that down and open a different offering. And you have to disclose a fair amount of stuff about your 
your business, not just the round details, but your financials, your business, your, your plans. And it has to be done on a platform. And you can only be on one platform at a time. And the portals, those are those platforms are responsible for a lot of things, investor education and fraud prevention and investor accounts and disclosure fees and interest, but there's no provision for diligence. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of have to do that on, on your own. And it was funny, you know, I, you and I were in Philadelphia right around the time this came out in the, that spring. And I did a keynote in a fireside chat with um, Sebastian gomez who's the deputy director of the Office of the Advocate for Small Business Capital at the SEC. And he was one of the authors of this. And Reg CF. And, you know, his attitude was this is not really meant to replace angel investing. It's meant to complement it. And he and I had a very interesting conversation. And and I sort of came away from it thinking that Reg CF was awesome, an awesome complement to what we do, but not a perfect fit for every business. I think it's businesses that hope to address a national or international market and grow really fast and maybe move into taking VC, you know, might want to stick with the, with the exempt 506B type accredited investor type deals. But there's an awful lot of companies where crowdfunding is as much about sort of stakeholders as stockholders. Mm-hmm. So for example, a rural community trying to come together to raise money to build an animal hospital. You see tons of, of the few hundred million that have been done. There are some science and tech-based companies starting to come in, some biotechs in particular, but a lot of them are consumer packaged goods brands or mm-hmm. brew pubs where there's sort of a community element. There have been some crowd reg CF deals to save a brand that was going to go out of business or to save a piece of land from development, like a nonprofit campground that was going to get sold for development and people come together so that it's awesome for that kind of thing where people are motivated as much as a stakeholder and then as a stockholder. Mm -hmm. But because of the sort of the limitations of the rules and stuff, you know, once a company does this, they're stuck with a ton of small investors and they have ongoing, it's a little bit like being a mini public company. You have ongoing disclosure obligations to those investors forever. And those disclosure obligations are not, they're not minimal. You really do have to give meaningful disclosure and you can't ever stop doing that until you redeem those investors, get them buy their stock back, which under the gap accounting rules can be complicated, you know, involving potentially having to have enough profit, just retained income to, you know, to do it. So it's kind of a one-way door. And I think that for a lot of companies, it's great, but I think entrepreneurs should look beyond the brochure on some of these platforms and understand things like you know, that safe note that you still have a little bit of room in or that convertible note that you still could raise another 500K in. If you do a reg CF offering, you can't fill that convertible note. You've got to end the reg CF offering and there has to be a time limit that goes by to make sure that those don't get integrated as the same offering in the eyes of the SEC. So awesome potential 
for the right kinds of companies, but the the high growth companies that are a good candidate for the the reg, you know, the 506B type, you know, exempt deals may not be a perfect fit for them. I've had a number of portfolio companies get into pretty bad jams as a result of Reg CF. So yeah, so you did mention 506B a couple of times. So just explain what that is real quick. Yeah. So you know the basic um I'm I'm turning into an SEC nerd, you know, <laughs> being on this committee, but when we had the meltdown in the 1920s, you know, we had to figure out how we were going to regulate our stock markets. And there were two ways you can regulate capital markets. One way is the government can pass like the, the quality of meat, like the USDA was a grade A beef, where the government gets into the business of looking at the quality of investments, which is not a place that you want a government involved. The other way you can do it is you can focus on the quality of disclosure and respect the investors. Sunshine is the best disinfectant. And that's the path the U.S. went down. And we have, as a result of that, we have long had this idea that you can't sell stock to the public unless you create a registration statement under the 33 Act that's full of tons of disclosure about all the risks and everything about the business. Or if you don't have a registration statement, you need to find an exemption from the requirement. And there's a handful of exemptions, but they're all basically small. And the exemption that is used most commonly in the, in the startup context is a rule under Regulation D, Rule 506. And it basically says, look, if this offering really isn't a public offering like an IPO, but it's actually a limited offering that isn't generally solicited out in the newspaper and inviting a general public in, and you're only going to have accredited investors involved in it, then you don't need disclosure and a, a registration statement and, and approval from the SEC. It's essentially a private exempt offering. And it's exempt because it's not, you're not shouting about it from rooftops and you're only allowing people in who are deemed sophisticated enough to evaluate the risk based on the fact that they have certain well, welfare income thresholds. That's not a perfect measure of sophistication, but it's a black and white measure that was deemed a reasonable compromise in the 1980s when it was created. And so there really are two types of offerings under 506, Rule 506. The B offerings have no general solicitation at all, and they have accredited only. And the 506C deals do allow you to talk a little bit about the deal and generally solicit. But if you do that, then it's the burden is shifted to the company to prove that everybody's accredited. In a 506B deal, you can just sign a check a box, I'm accredited. But if it's if they have generally solicited, then the company has to put a little more effort. And that can be a little tricky because, you know, what are they going to do? Ask for your tax returns and so forth. Some of the platforms have tried to fix that, but it can be a little bit of a risk for the company to try to figure out whether everybody's accredited. So that when we talk about 506 and 506B, that's the 70 to 100,000 angel deals, you know, early stage startup angel deals that are done in a country like the United States every year. Right. Makes sense? It does. And basically the message to the entrepreneurs is do your homework before you're 
just going and taking money. It sounds like that's been the theme. Of yeah, and I, I don't think it's unpleasant homework. I think it's just getting a bunch of different perspectives, just asking people what they think. And most people aren't nerded out on this stuff and they're just not going to know. And most investors will just shrug and say, I'm not sure what's best. And there are regional differences. But if you ask around, you can find some folks who can at least alert you to the trade-offs you're making. There isn't a right answer. It's just there's consequences and trade-offs. Absolutely. As with everything. Well, Christopher, it was great having you on the show today. Thank you so much for coming and giving us all this wisdom. We appreciate it. Marsha, for you, anything. (laughs) See you soon. Um, Have a great Thanksgiving if I don't talk to you. The Angel Next Door podcast is brought to you by the Angel Capital Association's Angel University. What is Angel University? Well, it's the place that you can go to learn all about angel investing and learn from professional angels. We have two tracks. One is the Angel Investing Basics, and we also have the Angel Investing Deeper Dive. As part of Angel Investing Basics, we cover the fundamentals of angel investing, risks in angel investing, a due diligence workshop, term sheet basics, evaluation workshop, and workshop on angel returns and portfolio strategy. As part of the deeper dive, you would also learn about advanced workshop on capitalization tables, startup boards workshop, and angel exit strategies. Lots and lots of great information at Angel University. So just go to the Angel Capital Association's website at angelcapitalassociation.org to learn more. The Angel Next Door podcast is informational and not intended to serve as legal, tax, accounting, or investing advice. Our speakers and hosts are thoughtfully selected for their educational value, but their opinions are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of the Angel Capital Association, and the Angel Capital Association does not specifically endorse the use of presenters' products or services. Listeners of the podcast should consult their own tax, investing, legal, or accounting advisors before making important financial decisions. All warranties, including accuracy, completeness, and suitability for specific purpose, are disclaimed.